Welcome back to MERS Monday for more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, the team gathers to make their nominations for the MERS House Member of 2023, with assistance from guest reporter Ben Orner, a legislative and political journalist for MLive. Also, on December 6th, Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt dropped by the MERS newsroom to share his own views on how the year went, zooming in on Democrats' 100% clean energy by 2040 package, Nesbitt says it is so much like Governor Whitmer to get a huge public relations hit supporting a possible future presidential run while many plans are not fully implemented until after her governorship ends. This gives Republicans a chance as we continue to work to win back the House next year, to work to win back the Senate and win back the governorship, Nesbitt says. Now here's MERS podcast host Samantha Schreiber, editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Rurink, and House reporter Danielle James. Thank you, Mark Bayshore, for kicking off today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast, which will be running a bit shorter today as we dive into the holiday season. I don't know about everybody else, but I still can't believe Christmas is a week away. We are continuing our MERS Legislator of the Year nominations and are joined via Zoom by our editor, Kyle Malin, our publisher and the boss, John Rurink. And for our guest media nominator, we are joined by Ben Orner, one of MLive's legislative and political reporters. Hey, Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Ben, a quick question before we dive in. What do you think was your favorite memory of covering the legislator, le- legislature in 2023? My favorite memory? Um, I would say... I don't know when you're when you're on the floor in the thick of it, you know, you you feed off the drama. And I would say the most dramatic vote that uh, comes to my mind right now is the uh, the failure of the Detroit land tax uh, measure with all those Democrats defecting and the board being open for 90 minutes or so. I think. When that was going on, every time I saw a house floor photo, it ultimately looked like a Renaissance painting. A lot of characters, a lot of illustrations within one frame. And as for our actual house reporter here at MERS News, Danielle James, she is some she has submitted us her nomination uh, pre preemptively last week because she is currently out of town. Uh, but that kind of brings us into why we're all here today. We are going to be nominating our MERS House Member of 2023, the House Member of the Year. And Kyle, who ultimately started our Legislator of the Year Awards nominating process, with the House, you obviously have a much bigger chamber. You have a lot of different personalities, a lot of different ideologies, even within the two caucuses themselves. What do you kind of look for when naming a House Member of the Year? Well, our criteria has been those House members who have a high level of activity, who have shown some impact and have been effective in this particular year. So we're looking for people who have really stood out because of the work that they've done. Either they've um, chaired a committee that was very active or they've had a lot of bills or they've had maybe a particular bill that was kind of the highlight, kind of the centerpiece of the legislative session. And this year, I think it's going to be, it's very difficult to really narrow it down because there were so many bills that were kind of landmark pieces 
you know, it, it's going to be a hard one to come to. I mean, we've all got our nominations, but the discussion's going to be, uh, I think, pretty robust on this one because we've had so many members who had priorities that, um, you know, it's going to just be hard to just name one. What helps you kind of more? Does it help you at being someone who strays away from the pack and ultimately becomes a bit of a black sheep in the chamber? Or does it help you more to be very kind of productive, even if that might mean that you fall in line with higher up orders? I think it's about productivity, but it, but it's also about what what stands out. Um, you know, sometimes it's it's something that didn't pass that was supposed to pass, but most of the time it's the thing that did pass that's going to have uh, some impact that took a lot of work to get to. You know, there are some bills that, um, for as much headlines that it generates, doesn't necessarily entail a lot of work. Like, let's just say the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act, for example. I mean, you're adding a couple words to a law that in a bill that has been introduced year after year after year. I mean, you're just kind of throwing in a, a new bill into the hopper. And while it's monumental in the fact that it's historic, it didn't take a lot of work. But there are some bills, like let's say the energy package, for example, that took hours and hours and hours and hours of work. Those are the types of things that that I'm personally looking for. Those are the ones that uh, where somebody put in a lot of effort, had to bring in a lot of stakeholders, had a lot of hearings, had a lot of things to think about. And um, those are the people that I think we want to highlight because they were impactful, they were active, and um, they were very effective in then getting through that final piece of legislation. With all of that being said, would you like to kick us off, Kyle, by naming your MERS House Member of the Year? Yeah, thanks, Sam. So this was very difficult, like I said, because there were so many House members who were very excited to finally be in the majority to actually get some stuff done. Um, I was thinking in particular about uh, Felicia Brabeck. Uh, she had uh, conversion therapy. She was attempting to bring mental health services back into the fold as in a, in a very visual way. She had a bill that was designed to get... Um, more mental health services covered by insurance. Uh, Samantha Steckloff and her oral chemo bill. Uh, that oral chemo bill has been kicking around this town uh, for at least a decade, probably longer. Uh, and she was able to get it done. And I, not necessarily because the Democrats are in charge, but because she shared her very personal and compelling story on going through chemotherapy and how much easier it would have been for her to take oral chemo as opposed to the excruciating, painful process that she had to go through. She not only shared that once, not only twice, but three times. And um, I mean, each time was just as heart-wrenching as the last. And she didn't, she didn't spare on the details. I think there's very few bills where when somebody gave a speech, you felt like that there were votes that switched. I mean, it happens sometimes, but it really doesn't really happen all that often. When she gives that speech, I do believe there were votes that changed. And um, as a result, I think she's got to be recognized. But actually, my nomination is going to go to Kelly Breen, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, for her work on the red flag laws and gun reform in the aftermath of the Michigan State shooting. Going back to the spring, school shootings and gun violence in general was a huge story. And there was so much public pressure to do something. And as the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, she spent countless hours researching the right policy. 
And she made it clear that she wasn't going to do just something. When it came to red flag laws, she wanted to make sure she got it done right. So she held numerous hearings on the subject, heard from numerous sides. Uh, these hearings went very long. I, I sat through at least one of them. And the end product was something that I think she feels like protected the Second Amendment while assuring, assuring the community that there is a pathway to get guns out of the hands of people who are considered a threat to themselves and others. And uh, you could tell that she was pouring her heart into it and really working hard with actually Felicia Brayback to try and get something done right. So it was a it was a lot of work, a lot of effort, but that's not the only thing she did. Her committee, per your research, Sam, had the most bills passed out of it that uh, became public acts. So she, her committee was also active in doing uh, the uh, the child, what was called the child bride bills. Uh, they oversaw uh, some bills dealing with abortion as well and numerous other subjects that she ended up taking a look at. Firearms are still not off the table. That's something else that she's looking at. So for all of her work in uh, this space, family law, marriage, divorce, uh, there's just so many other subjects that she was uh, behind. Uh, I'd like to nominate Kelly Breen as House Member of the Year. It's so it's so interesting because I think when we look at those numbers of committees that oversaw the most bills that turned into public acts that turned into sign laws, it was very on the Senate side, you had judiciary and public safety and then in, as well as civil rights, the Civil Rights Judiciary and Public Safety Committee. And then on the House side, it was really Breen's Judiciary Committee as well as the Criminal Justice Committee that kind of oversaw a lot of legislation that became public access year. And it kind of goes to say that this has ultimately been described as the year of 40 years of pent up policy from Democrats. They had the major majorities, they had the committees, they had the cavils, gavels, what did they want to work on? And you really saw they took this very intense, substantial deep dive into judicial policy, which can cover anything from maybe a local court wants some assistance with a very niche administrative issue, or it's these topics that are much more that are much more debated on a national larger level, such as the extreme risk protection orders for firearm legislation. And that was one where safe storage background checks are pretty easy topics to talk about and debate on, while extreme risk protection orders are, are kind of the newest policies to enter that table. So Brain was ultimately responsible for bringing mental health professionals to the table, bringing law enforcement officers to the table. And how do you bring more clarity to a conversation that is still fair? Well, absolutely, Sam. And, you know, it's it's one thing to craft bills on a subject that has been kind of kicked around for a little bit, or you're just amending a current act. But to create a new act is a lot more difficult. So let's jump over to Ben, our guest media nominator. Who did you want to nominate for House Member of the Year? I'm going to go with Representative Abraham Ayash, a Democrat from Hamtramck. Kyle said earlier in the in the podcast that um, it's it's hard to to pick one big landmark piece of legislation considering all you know all the consequential things that got done. Um, one thing that stands out to me was the uh, clean energy 
legislation that that passed recently that Whitmer signed it a few weeks ago, you know, giving Michigan a renewable and clean energy uh, target and then taking local control of um, you know, large solar and, and wind projects, giving it to the state to increase Michigan's um, renewable energy output. And uh, Representative Ioff was a, was a big part of that. And uh, along with him and uh, Representative Ranjeev Curry of, of Canton, and um, Phil Skaggs of uh, the Grand Rapids area. But Ayash, you know, being in those meetings, those press conferences, you know, watching the negotiations happen, it seemed like Ayash really took a big lead on that. Um, and uh, he was one of the lead, I guess, explainers of it. There's there's getting legislation done. That's important. Um, and then also a, an important part of the legislative process, at least when you're on the thick of it in the floor, I think, is, you know, representatives being able to have many debates with the other side, being able to explain themselves accurately and proficiently. And as a uh, majority floor leader, Ayash was always in the thick of it, um, having to help lead things, uh, lead, lead proceedings while they happened. And then also on the floor, he would have like many debates, uh, especially with Brian Posthumus, Republican. And, you know, you, you need a sort of efficiency and a certain political skill in keeping things moving and always, I don't know, you guys, when you're in the majority, just staying on topic and, and keeping things moving. And, you know, when, when lawmakers would come over to us in the press and, you know, they, they'd have uh, discussions with us, Ayash was always well-spoken. And there were some times where, you know, it would be him talking um, with us while our Republican was talking with us. And they would have many debates here and there. And Ayash always seemed to be clear and concise and uh, explain things very well. I remember when Democrats first kind of took that majority number, that 56 majority that they initially started in the beginning of the year with, which is now 54. But when they started, there was a scrum with Ayash and also Speaker Tate. And it was about the question of, are Democrats actually going to repeal right to work this year? Which they did fairly early. And it was kind of Speaker Tate ultimately being like, oh, well, you know, we're going to consider what all we have been working on, what all we're interested in doing. We'll get there when we get there. And Ayash, from what I've heard how that scrum went, he was very much like, it's gone. It's done. We're going to do it. <laughs> It's kind of interesting to see kind of the different dynamics and leadership in the House where you could have some leaders that are a little bit more hesitant and cautionary to share what their battle strategy is. And then you also have someone like Ayash who really kicked off this year expressing what his intentions were, what his ambitions were, and also someone who was our most liberal House member of 2023. And he kind of represents that... Um, that multifacetedness in the chamber of the Democratic caucus, how you do have more progressive members who aren't afraid to shake the pot, even when it comes to conversations with their own colleagues within the caucus. Yeah, he was certainly forward and outspoken. Um, and among Democrats in leadership roles, you, you know, you probably see Joe Tate as more of a um, behind the scenes kind of guy, you know, moving and shaking, getting things done. But uh, Ayash always seemed to be uh, one of those folks who was just on the forefront of things, you know, leading the charge as people saw it from the outside. So now we're going to pause for a moment to take a listen to hear who our House reporter, Danielle James, nominated for House Member of the Year. 
Thank you, Sam. And, you know, I chose to nominate Representative Lori Pohutsky from the 17th House District for House Member of the Year. I did so because, in addition to being a powerhouse as Speaker Pro Tem, she has led the pack on abortion and LGBTQ rights legislation. As Speaker Pro Tem, Pohutsky has brought both humor and order to the gavel, managing to joke with members about Rule 32 while simultaneously bringing what I feel has been a strong approach to commanding the chamber. When Pohutsky does step down from the rostrum, it has been to advocate for expanding access to abortion, including repealing abortion laws still on the books but rendered obsolete by the passage of the 2022 Proposal 3 or the creation of the Reproductive Health Act, which was just signed by the governor last Monday. Pohutsky was the lead sponsor on that bill package and joined Governor Whitmer to share her own story at the bill signing, which you can read in Merce. Pohutsky has also advocated for increased protections for LGBTQ plus Michiganders. She was the sponsor of a bill prohibiting the use of the gay or trans panic defense in Michigan and made headlines when she apologized to members of the LGBTQ plus community who saw their representative vote against the bill. Pohutsky also gave a speech when the House passed a Pride Month resolution, which she said she's fought for in the past but wasn't able to have her name on previously as an openly bisexual legislator. In total, Pohutsky sponsored 11 bills, including legislation repealing a spousal rape defense, licensing dietitian nutritionists, and requiring insurance coverage for prenatal screenings. She has three PAs, one on the Reproductive Health Act, one repealing outdated abortion legislation, and one removing the spousal rape defense. The third-term legislator is chair of the Natural Resources, Environment, Tourism, and Outdoor Recreation Committee, majority vice chair of the Government Operations Committee, and she sits on the Health Policy Subcommittee on Behavioral Health. And for those reasons, I have nominated her. Thank you. Okay, John the Boss, our publisher, who do you want to nominate for House Member of the Year? Uh, this year, I'm actually going to offer into nomination the name of the House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman, uh, Angela Whitworth. As I've mentioned in the past, um, I like to actually talk to some of our subscribers, the lobbyists who work with with members, and uh, about half the lobbyists I talked to immediately went to Whitworth when I said who was the most effective member of the House. Uh, and it's also worth noting that earlier this year, um, she won our insider survey, the MERS Epic MRI Insider Survey on who the most effective Democratic member of the House was. And in that voting, she took 34% of the vote, edging out, edging out, excuse me, a Speaker of the House, Joe Tate, who only had 28%. Now, historically, as Kyle will tell you, uh, usually speakers uh, kind of get the edge on these votes pretty pretty regularly. And it was interesting to see her uh, out, out maneuver him, out garner him. I also want uh, to nominate her for a couple of other reasons too. Besides appropriations, and this was the Democrats' first uh, big budget year in terms of controlling the whole process. She also um, worked on some other issues that are very important to me, having sort of watched my parents' age, specifically House Bill 4197, a bill to enact financial protections for seniors, for vulnerable seniors, which means, you know, tells me she's she's a multi-dimensional lawmaker. She's not just in the appropriations lane. So that was important to me. I'm also uh, nominating her as the appropriations chair because uh, as a a 56-year-long resident of the Lansing community, I've watched uh, as the host city, host community of the state of state government often seemed to get short shrift when it came to state projects. It was never really a focal point of the state. I think in in many cases it it got the short shrift because it was the seat of state government. And uh, Sam, I think you 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 wrote an article that enumerated a lot of the appropriations projects that came out this year uh, that benefited Lansing. Um, So it was nice to see as a longtime Lansing resident, uh, see some Lansing projects come through. 
So while Whitmer has also received some bad press, there were some articles that alluded she was too close to her prior business, uh, business she no longer owns. There was a, some criticism about a baby shower uh, in the Capitol building. Uh, while she got some bad press, um, I think overall she's been the most effective and impactful member of the House this year. Yeah, if I if I could too, um, Sam, I just want to add that you know that first bill of the year four zero zero one, which ended up being the entire tax plan, was uh, one of the big bills of the year, and it, it was it was one that the Democrats led led with. And, um, you know, does that get past the, the House without Whitwer working behind the scenes to make it happen? I mean, that was that was a very tentious vote. And she was able to um, do what it took to get that passed. And there was, you know, a lot of differences of opinions as to what was going to look like with the earned income tax credit and what's going to happen on the retirement front. And in the end, I, I think she did a very good job of steering that through and making sure that that was a victory for everybody on the Democratic side and not an embarrassment, which it could have ended up being. Whitwer is one of those lawmakers that really has a has a rep has the reputation this year as being the one who works behind the scenes on very intricate things. And I think when it comes to a state budget, especially when you think about the various disputes that define 2023, it's really about trying to make everybody happy. You have to make the governor happy. You have to find a way to entice Republicans to at least ensure that they give the budget immediate effect so that it can take place when it needs to take place. And also, she is someone who received backlash from members within her own caucus, uh, people that were Democrats, but also targeted her for the various negative headlines. So when you're in that kind of that position, these are people that are kind of throwing glass at you, but you also have to work with them to create a productive budget, as well as some productive end of the year supplementals that provided relief to school districts, some school districts that no longer is, I mean, exist, but those communities were still paying off debt for. So with that being said, I suppose it is time for me to name my house member of the year. So so I have a bit of my own special weapon as we go into nominating our house member and senator of 2023, which will be next week's episode. On December 13th, I did a report on legislative committees, which oversaw the most bills that became signed laws as of last week and learned that Rep. Matt Colazar's House Education Committee supervised the earliest development and testimony on 14.7% of House bills that became public acts not including supplemental spending and budget bills. Rep. Colazar, a Plymouth Democrat and previous teacher, either introduced or led major changes to Michigan's education system, both in terms of education itself and the labor side, including erasing Michigan's report card style A through F letter grade system for ranking public schools, shifting dependency completely to an and completely on to an already existing one through 100 scale index system for evaluating schools that's federally required and was federally approved. He additionally introduced House Bill 4044, preventing teachers' wage rates and benefit packages from freezing when a collective bargaining agreement between a teacher's union and a school district expires and new negotiations begin to take place. 
Outside of the education ecosystem, Rhett Colazar was a lead sponsor in this year's new hands-free distracted driving policy following quite literally years of debate, uh, both among progressives and conservatives, uh, which penalizes motorists with a $100 fine and or 16 hours of community service for an initial violation of holding or using a cell phone while operating a regular motor vehicle. So again, something that has been talked about for years, uh, but yet this year we actually saw cross the finish line and get signed into law. And he was also involved in legislation codifying the Federal Affordable Cares Act into state law in case the ACA was ever undone at the federal level, with his bill ensuring coverage for dependents of policyholders until they're 26 years old. So as for those various reasons that I am choosing to nominate Representative Colazar, a Plymouth Democrat, to be House Member of the Year. Yeah, I think that's a very defendable uh, pick Samantha. Education was a very big subject this year. You know, talking about teacher evaluations in particular. Uh, you know, that's a that's always been a heated subject. Uh, so there were a lot of different bills that he was uh, involved in in that education committee uh, committee to get that through. Uh, but then also was uh, very active on the labor front, and uh, this was a very um, uh, labor, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, intensive year in regards to that. He was uh, very involved in a lot of different aspects. And uh, yeah, it was a good, uh, good nomination. Same as bringing out the stats. I, I love doing number drops. I feel like that is one of my favorite flexes. So my New Year's resolution is to have even more stats and even more numbers that I can more drop. Numbers. <laughs> even though it may hurt some of our listeners' brains. But I hope you all know my intentions are good. Hey, if you don't do it, who will, Sam? So I'm going to turn on our suspenseful music as we dive into our own conversation of who should be the MERS house member of 2023. Dun, dun, dun. Waiting to the suspense music as we had a bit of a private heated debate of who we wanted to be the MERS House Member of the Year. And at the final moment, we all decided to agree that we are selecting Kelly Breen, uh, a Novi Democrat, as the state rep of 2023. Yeah, you know what? Uh, you know, we were really uh, impressed by the amount of activity that was coming out of that House Judiciary Committee. Uh, that it didn't stop with the gun control legislation, but that uh, we moved on to other subjects dealing with families and dealing with children and abortion and probate and power of attorney and just several subjects. And it just kind of just the workload just continued on. And she was able to reach consensus on some issues too, along the way, working with the business community, at least listening to the other side. You know, during her committee hearings, even on the gun legislation, it didn't feel necessarily one-sided and it felt like people were being able to get their say in the matter. So, I mean, it, it, that takes a little bit of work, that takes a little bit of tolerance. And um, I think we were impressed by the way that uh, she conducted uh, all of those hearings and uh, the uh, the amount of legislation she was able 
to get done and just not just bill numbers. I mean, you can go and look through bill numbers, but actual subjects, there's just a lot of different subjects coming out of that Judiciary Committee. Absolutely. That's kind of what I was thinking when I also decided that I wanted Breen to be our House Member of the Year. Her committee additionally oversaw some Republican-led legislation as well, such as the Kathy Schmaltz HB 4045 instructing the Michigan State Police to administer a volunteer employee criminal history system program, allowing qualified businesses like those involved with care placement services to request an employee or volunteer's criminal history record information from the MSP. And that was something where there was even just kind of a bit of Democratic opposition as well as we kind of dive into those more complex judicial issues where you kind of see progressives and conservatives coming together on their opposition while they both kind of have different angles of where that opposition is coming from, which I find very fascinating. Yeah. And Kyle, I want to comment on your point about tolerance. You know, every conservative Republican ought to have the tolerance to listen to uh, liberal union points of view, hear their arguments, weigh their arguments, and not just dismiss them. And it's true the opposite direction as well. And it's and it seems like Representative Breen's got the willingness to, to at least listen uh, to, to ideas and concepts that maybe she wouldn't otherwise agree with, but she's going to listen. She's going to she's going to be there in the legislative process. I think overall, I'm very fascinated to see what is going to be the role of these judicial issues going into 2024, especially given the unique dynamics that the House is going to be starting with, with a 54-54 split chamber. Is this going to be one of those committees that you start seeing being active before the chamber itself becomes active, just because of some of these very, very particular issues where you're either able to see party line support or a united support or kind of a scramble of opposition. And with that, all of that being said, that is why we have selected Representative Kelly Brain as the MERS House member of 2023. And now we are going to be interviewing the leader from the other side of the chamber's aisle, Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt, a Lawton Republican who is on his second term as a state senator in Michigan and who served in the state house from 2011 through 2017. Uh, hello, Senator Nesbitt. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we've had you know, various Republican lawmakers come on this podcast. And kind of one of my opening questions in December and November is, is there anything that happened in 2023 that genuinely surprised you? I think I was your first Republican lawmaker on the podcast a few years ago. Isn't that true? Yeah, back when Kyle started letting me on the podcast. World of, I think it was still during the world of COVID back then. So it's all there. I think the biggest surprise of this year at, at the end of the day is, is the fact that I think the governor controlled both the executive branch and the legislative branch in terms of the priorities and issues that went through. And it was unfortunate not seeing the legislature or actually provide some of their own priorities this year and just falling in line with what the governor's left-wing progressive policies were as she goes ahead and, and tries to increase her national ambitions and her national framing. And you saw that from, from even the beginning of the year with one of the first bills that they passed was on 
moving the presidential primary earlier next year, uh, which would, again, disenfranchise half of the Republican voters here in the state of Michigan uh, for having that primary before March 1st. No negotiations, no yearning to find uh, a compromise. I've tried to push it to March March 1st or on Kyle's birthday of March 2nd. There you go. Uh, you know, first Saturday in March, and they refused to compromise, just taking the marching orders from the Biden White House. And you see that with the policies as they continued on with, uh, instead of trying to find ways to find a line, landing spot on a bipartisan compromise on taxes, which they would have had with, with Republicans on the earned income tax credit on uh, you know uh, on on pension uh, you know retirement exemptions there would have been Republican votes on all those instead what they saw what you saw is them jam through a 500 million dollar a year nearly what two billion dollar uh, corporate uh, welfare program uh, to load up the SOAR program and cut the knees out of you know the, having legislative oversight of it well all while trying to prevent that income tax from being rolled back this year and now they've went through every contortion possible to increase the income tax next year because a majority of michigan's impact in the presidential primary for republicans is going to be determined through a closed party caucus are you concerned about a lot of people that want to participate in that republican primary being you know, would I dare use the word disenfranchised? Well, they, they had to respond somehow with the way Governor Whitmer and legislative Democrats went ahead and did a full partisan play on the presidential primaries. And then they and then we had the earliest signing die in 55 years is, is, is a reason for it. Two reasons. One, this year was all about leaving town early all about having an early Christmas break for the legislature because they refused to compromise with us on some on, on disenfranchising half the voters in the state of Michigan. Now, fortunately, the, we found a landing spot on saying, okay, a third of the delegates we picked on the primary, two-thirds from the caucus because of the way the RNC rules are. So there will be a full delegation to the Republican National Convention. However, as soon as the House went to a 54-54 split also, and Democrats lost their majority there. They hiked out of town also. So it was the two factors, that there's a non-seriousness from this administration, a bipartisan compromise and work. And then two is that they went through all these contortions possible that you hear from the clerks of pulling these special elections as early as possible. Don't even match it up to the presidential primary for the for the uh, Democrat special election primaries in February. And then they didn't even follow the, the May local election option that they were there. They moved to what, three weeks earlier? It's possible to get what, an April 16th you know election instead of a May 7th? And you're hearing that from the clerks that they're really pushing on some you know, a real challenge for trying to meet these new requirements that the governor's putting in. On top of this is that if there's a seriousness on finding some bipartisan compromise that's out there, let's find some areas that I'd like to work on. Areas such as instead of having an August primary, let's look at having a May or June primary. Something that the clerks have been asking for and saying that having an August primary with all this early voting, all this overseas voting is way too close together. 
and there's been zero movement on this from from this majority. And then, you know, secondly, is that let's try to find some things to lower the cost of doing business here in the state of Michigan. You see, uh, you know, you see them doing a lot of things this year that increases the cost of doing doing business here in Michigan, whether it's the new energy bill, the clean, you know, green new deal that they passed earlier this year that'll hike energy costs, whether it's uh, the increase in the income tax that's happening next year, whether it's their uh, uh, increase in the cost of construction with new, the new prevailing wage mandates. Uh, let's do something to actually lower the cost of doing business. And I think a good starter with that, with that next year would be to, to pass a, a bill that would allow for state siting for uh, for aggregates, you know, for sand and gravel. And, and, and so these are areas where you could actually find some bipartisan compromise. There's, there's some other things on openness and transparency in government that we can find. But this popula- population commission, who knows what's coming out of, out of this one, you know, right now. Is there actually going to be a seriousness on bipartisan compromise, or is it just going to be from this population commission some more higher taxes, more spending, and more of the same? I have a quick question for you following up. You mentioned the primary were there areas, though, that you felt you were able to work with a, on a bipartisan basis with your Democratic colleagues in the Senate? You, you seem to be a little more uh, unanimous votes, I think, in the Senate than in the House. We reported that 1849 was the last year we had so few in the yeah. House. So I've been doing some counting myself. So we had 19 unanimous votes in the House. And I know the no-brainer reality that there's just a lot more members in the House than there are in the Senate. But the Senate, you all managed to have more than 90 unanimous votes this year. What is kind of your uh, your explanation for that? Well, I think there's, there's one thing that we did work on that was a requirement from Proposal 1 last year is that I... We did work with um, Senate Majority Leader and and myself uh, on trying to find a landing spot on on the a first what I would call a first step in openness and transparency in state government. Something that was unfortunately they wait you know waited till late in the fall and late in the session to actually get done uh, instead of have you know taking an earlier look and getting you know and trying to finish it up earlier. However. My hope is that it's actually just a first step in terms of work on on what has actually needed for a little bit more openness and transparency in the state. I think there's continues to be missed opportunities this year as you look at legislation that came through. I started off with ways that you could have gotten a broad bipartisan consensus on taxes earlier this year. I was ready to provide uh, immediate relief for the working poor on the earned income tax credit. I was calling on since April and May saying that let's give that immediate effect so we could have immediate relief. They wanted to use that as an excuse for leaving town early instead of presidential primaries or losing their majority in the House. And they're on seriousness of wanting a bipartisan compromise. There is a series of bills, and you've been around you know, long enough to know that there's a matter of governing and a matter of, 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 of updating some laws, updating some old acts, or implementing new acts, where we can find landing spots. And that's, that's a lot of the votes, whether it's a half of them or a quarter of them, or you know, sometimes, some years it's 80%, where you, you find broad bipartisan consensus on, on, on certain issues. And, and that, but a lot of those don't get the press attention probably outside the inside Lansing news you know newspapers like MERS but a lot of the press attention because it's not a uh, what's the old old story if it bleeds it leads yeah and, you know that one yeah have you given much thought though how do you how do you balance how, how do you think about balancing policy versus the oppositional role I mean you used to, the caucus used to be majority now you're minority you had to give some thought about how you sort of 
balance those. It's about how do you advance the state? How do you advance the state of Michigan? How do you make Michigan more livable? How do you improve education? How do you improve our competitiveness in the 21st century? And how do you go ahead and improve the infrastructure here in the state of Michigan? And so it's, as I look at it, it's how do you make Michigan a better state to live, work, raise a family, receive an education and retire in. And I'm willing, if, if, willing to work with anybody at any time if we're able to find a landing spot on that. But unfortunately on areas like education, which I was ready to find, you know, enhancing career and technical education or enhancing our, our you know, community college or certification programs here in the state, uh, you know, was more than happy to find landing spots and work with uh, Democrats on, on issues that I think we could find were areas of workforce development to, to improve our competitiveness. Instead, what you saw on their education plan was a repeal of some accountability measures that were passed years ago to provide further accountability to our schools. Their first education bill was to repeal third grade reading, saying let's have a requirement that kids that are moving out of the third grade are actually reading at the third grade level because reading, the basis of reading helps you for everything else in life. And that's why we have March is reading month. That's why we go around in the schools is talking about reading. And it wasn't just for a punitive side. I and mean, when the third grade reading law was passed eight years ago, it was about wraparound services. It was trying to find early interventions, all those things. And that was the first bill the Democrats did on education was to repeal the third grade reading law. Second bill they did on education was to repeal an accountability in the school buildings, letter grades on school buildings, a clear, concise thing for parents and families seeing what kind of schools that they're sending their kids to, what's the performance there. And then as the, legis the legislature adjourns and the governor just signed a repeal of using student growth for teacher evaluations. Now they can use 0% of student growth on teacher evaluation. How they scale that down to 15%? No. If it was part, it has to be part of a collective bargaining process instead of having a minimum. Oh, I see. And so this is this is the challenge: is that now you have this, you know, this leaked copy that I think Murr's got a hold of and and shared with the world on the Population Commission. Oh, yeah. And and um, it's talking about accountability measures in education, and it seems like there's a full hypocrisy from this administration and the giveaways to these big union bosses instead of accountability to parents, families, and making sure children are actually receiving a quality education here in Michigan. Are you encouraging uh, Senator Kristen McDonald Rivet to run for Congress? I think everybody needs to find their own path and, and where they think they, they're more, most effective. You wouldn't but be upset I, if she did. I, I think if, if she wins that, that seat, uh, I don't think you'll see the governor calling a special election as quickly as she called a special election for these two uh, Democrat state Why's rep that? seats. Well, because I think we'll win that seat. You would win that seat. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you look at it, she only won by, you know, it's the second most vulnerable Senate Democrat. And she's made some really left-wing progressive votes this year, step, fall in line with the big labor union bosses, with the trial lawyers, with the extreme environmentalists, on our votes of increasing costs for uh, energy here in the state, decreasing reliability in the state. And they get something where she's going to have a challenge in her the general election next year if she is the you know congressional if she wins the primary, which it seems with her voting record, her left-wing voting record, she should have a pretty good chance of winning the primary. And it seems like everybody's paving the way for her. 
you know, uh, Senator uh, Ananick's not running. Senator Cherry's not running. Looks like Kildee's chief of staff just announced he's not. So, and she just happened to be in D.C. the day that Kildee announced he was not running again, right? I'm sure. I, it probably was. I, I mean, it just just happened. I, I mean, I haven't so. been D.C. for years, but I guess some people are going there all the time. So, why is Ron DeSantis not getting any traction? I think he he's getting more traction than any of the other ones and besides he's, Trump. He's at 10%. So he's at 20% in Iowa right now and, okay. and, and increasing. And he's and it's one where it's actually improved a bit in Iowa. So let's watch Iowa. Let's see where it goes. Ron DeSantis is a, you know, the most transformational Republican governor in, in the United States right now, has shown that uh, he's willing to take on the big issues and improve the economy. And it's a state that continues to grow with a 0% income tax. And, and Governor DeSantis, I think, has, has proven that he's not just a, a smart individual. He's somebody that can actually implement conservative reforms and agenda items. And so I, I think as you look at this year, every new indictment on, on President Trump seems to have improved his standing within the Republican primary because they view it, you know, I think the base, the Republican primary base views it as, as a weaponization of the judicial system. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of Trump's strength. We've mentioned the clean energy 100% by 2440 package a few times in our conversation. But I think even proponents of this legislation are addressing that costs could go up. But we won't actually know could? if they will. They we will won't go actually, up. Either way, They're already though, going up. Either way, though, we won't actually know until 2028 when these utility providers are issuing their clean energy plans to the MPSC. Uh, how, how is this going to have an impact on the 2024 elections if you won't really feel any financial impact from you're, these bills? You're, you're talking $2,700 a year is what the reputable Mackinac Center said is going to be the annual impact. And you have Governor Whitmer praying around saying it's going to save people, what, $70? a year well maybe it might save them 70 dollars a year but it's going to cost them 2700 dollars a year which is a net negative at the end of the day this is an unrealistic goal that'll ban natural gas over the next effectively ban natural gas over the next 20 years and it makes it so that what it is and you're right that the implementation i think it was dan scripps that was was it on this show yeah, or another that that the head of the psc who turned into this big environmental lobbyists the last few months as they were pushing through this partisan left-wing plan, which I think is completely unacceptable from Chairman Scripps on um, the way he was an advocate and a lobbyist uh, for this uh, new energy mandate. I, I think that was that was wrong of him in his role as the chair of the Public Service Commission. But this is so much like Governor Whitmer. She gets the huge public relations hit. She appeases the coastal billionaires. She gets the articles in the Washington Post and New York Times in the in the New Yorker, all for growing her national ambitions and, and her national reputation that's, that's out there. She keeps her trigger ready to run for president. And yet a lot of these plans aren't fully implemented until 26 or 27. And so this gives Republicans a chance as we continue to work to win back the House next year, as we work to win back the Senate and win back the governorship, to actually lower the cost of doing business, of, of living in, in, in Michigan, of having affordable, productive energy. And now with the Democrats ramming through a partisan left-wing plan, 
they own the reliability issues. They didn't fix the distribution reliability issues that are out there. And they're going to be increasing the costs and rates on Michigan customers, manufacturers, and seniors over the so next coming years. So beyond energy, what do you think are going to be Republicans winning issues in Michigan for 2024? I think you see it with crime. You see it uh, with uh, public safety and trying to protect families and, and individuals. You saw that last year. That was an effective difference between a Democrat like, uh, you know, former Representative Legrand, who was a let them all out with, you know, no uh, cash bonds for violent felons compared to a strong uh, law and order candidate like Mark Heisinger. And you saw that, that Whitmer won that seat by 11 points. And we we won that. That, that seat. And you'll also see it between this wide divide between what's the role and purpose of government. And, and you have some of these members on the Democrat side and a competitive seat that I view would go full Venezuela on Michigan. And so there's a f- real difference between these folks that want a, a socialist vision for the future of America and those that believe in the individual, the market economy, and, and individuals making their own own decisions. And I, I, and I leave that uh, as you look at some of these members, whether they're incumbent Democrats in Downriver, in Macomb County, in Traverse City, in Marquette, in, in, in West Michigan, in Battle Creek. I think there's, what, three House Democrats that are in Trump districts that Trump won in 2020. And so... I would be, you know, in next year's election in a Trump v. Biden race, I would be, you know, those three right there, I'd be very concerned. And there's a reason why Mark Brewer sued on these house maps is because they know these are competitive maps. And there's these ones that that is after voting on all these partisan left wing agenda items that it's a real challenge. But I think the two main issues is that you have security, family security, and you can wrap that with what's going on at the federal level with the wars in the Middle East. Eastern Ukraine and the border, along with local stuff such as fentanyl, crime, and some of the what the Democrats have introduced and are pushing through. That is, uh, these woke prosecutors are not going after, you know, uh, criminals. And then I'd say too is the cost of living. What you're seeing with rising energy costs, increased taxes, uh, the debts, deficits, higher interest rates that you're you're seeing. And so I think those are the two main themes. And the Democrats are going to continue to play on that tired record of mega Trump Republicans wanting to ban abortion. And I think that's something where in Michigan, I don't see that working at all going, you know, going into next year. Could you tell us about quadrant meetings? Are they happening? What's the the mood like when they do happen? Are they happening enough? What's your what's your read? I mean, they happen when the governor wants something. How many have you had? Half dozen. Half dozen. Maybe eight. I think maybe six. I mean, there was. I mean, I guess there was a few at the beginning of the year when they wanted all that corporate welfare stuff done, and then uh, she wanted her population commission end of April, beginning of May. We wanted a you know, more 50-50 commission, real bipartisan commission, one that, uh, and she just pulled, you know, pulled the, decided, I think there's two or three on that. And then uh, this fall, she wanted maybe two or three this fall. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Well, we are near the end of our conversation. So I apologize. I do just want to ask this question while it's on my mind, though. I want to ask about corporate incentives. I know that you are someone who opposed the SOAR fund from the very beginning, correct? I've been very consistent on, in, on, on corporate welfare. I think you need to look at how do you make Michigan more competitive and attractive 
for for manufacturers, for business to and small businesses to invest and grow in, in the state. You know, Democrats have secured. $500 million to be deposited into the four fund annually for the next two upcoming fiscal years. Are you concerned that the SOAR fund and our state's version of corporate incentives and economic development, are you concerned that it's become a wild horse? What I'm concerned about is the future of Michigan and the way that they've worked this year to increase the cost and lessen the incentives of actually investing and growing jobs here in the state of Michigan. And I'm afraid that they're following the Democrat majority and Governor Whitmer of following the failed policies of states of shrinking states such as New York and and California and Illinois, instead of looking at growing states such as Florida or Texas or Utah or Idaho or Tennessee or Georgia. I mean, there's a lot of examples to have out there. Capital goes through the path of least resistance, kind of like electricity does. And what they've been doing this year is putting up every resistor possible for companies to invest and grow here in the state, whether they're home growing, growing international companies or, or companies from other states. And you saw that with the repeal of right to work, which takes you off from a lot of lists on manufacturing, increasing the cost of building new construction projects. That's you know the mandate on prevailing, prevailing wage, going ahead and uh, um, increasing the cost of energy and the less reliability of energy. What they've done on, on line five is, is, is horrendous. I mean, that should be open next summer. That was the original intent in 2018 when it was passed in a bipartisan level was to open line five ne- next year. Then you have a whole series of bills that have been introduced in this Democrat majority that would increase costs even more. Increased costs on, you know, by by huge trial lawyer giveaways that that have been, you know, introduced for, you know, on on, on insurance companies. Uh, there's talk of them blowing up our workman's comp and unemployment insurance system, all in the name of the trial lawyers and, and big unions. I mean, we had the most expensive workman's comp and unemployment insurance system in the nation in the 80s. It was a bipartisan compromise. I think it was actually under Blanchard and and a Republican Senate and a Democrat House that created the system we we have to today. But what you're seeing is that because of what they've done on energy, on taxes, on labor laws, on environmental laws, is that they're going to have to work on whatever way possible to bribe companies to invest in Michigan instead of creating that conditions where companies will grow and prosper here in the state without every you know incentive under, under the sun. Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt, thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Hey, thanks for having me and uh, God bless. And that's going to do it for today's episode of the MERS Monday podcast. I would like to remind our listeners that, as Mark Bayshore mentioned in the introduction, Senate Minority Leader Eric Nesbitt spoke to us on December 6, which was before the Governor's Growing Michigan Together Council approved a final draft last week of its recommendations, including what MERS covered as an overhaul of Michigan's education system and expanding statewide public transportation and housing availability and options. However, opponents remain concerned that such recommendations will ramp up taxes in Michigan, although the report did not specifically list potential tax increase opportunities. Of course, we would like to thank Senator Nesbitt for joining us on December 6. We would also like to thank MLive's legislative and political reporter Ben Orner for joining us today to name our House Member of the Year.
I'd like to give a tremendous thanks as well and as always to MERS editor Kyle Malin, the boss John Rurank, and our house reporter Danielle James. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio and Okamas. Thanks to him for putting this and all of our audio together. Additionally, thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all of our other podcasts. Until next time, I am Samantha Schreiber. the dark I need some time so I can find a place where I can get over you